Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you for all that it does to show us how to live in this world and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray for your help as I preach, that your spirit would fill me and everyone here, that we would do your will. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're in a sermon series on abundance for others, which is the word that I have from the Lord, I believe, for this year, for 2019, for our church, that we're meant to focus in particular on that. But the question comes up right away, which others? Who are we talking about? Who are these people that this abundance is for? And so we're doing three sermons right now in this series, looking at Luke chapter 14, where, as I wrote in my Bible, that focuses on the last, the least, and the lost. And so we've got a banquet in chapter 14 of Luke where Jesus was feasting and, um, and then gives three parables about banquets. And the first one we looked at last week, which dealt with putting ourselves forward. The people were trying to get positions of honor at the table, and they were putting themselves forward, and they were trying to, I, I suspect, trying to get self-esteem, self-worth. They wanted to seem important. And Jesus said, don't do that. Put yourself in the last place and then let the host bring you up to a higher place. God will exalt the humble. The Lord is the one who can give you the self-esteem and the honor that you need. This week, we're going to look at the least. So the last, now the least. Today, we're, um, we're looking at the, the next section of this where he talks about when you host somebody, that you would serve those in need. And it will deal with the issue of motives, of not serving for what you'll get in return, serving those that actually can't do anything in return for you, the least among you. And then next week, we're going to look at the lost and those who have excuses for keeping God at arm's length and remain lost rather than embracing the kingdom as it's coming to them. So the least, serving the least. In 1999, Heather and I were invited to be on a mission trip in the Bahamas. We were living in Chicago. We went with a youth group out of um, a church in South Carolina where we would later serve. I didn't know that at the time. Um, but it was the first trip like this where we actually crossed a cultural barrier, went overseas into the Bahamas, and we were serving Haitian immigrants who had floated across and come to the Bahamas, and they were living in a ghetto, basically, a part of the Bahamas um, in, in the Nassau region um, in real bad poverty. Um, they didn't speak the language. They were speaking a kind of a French Creole type of Haitian language, and they were in homemade shacks and tiny little houses that they kind of pulled together. And I now say what is typical of a trip like this. Then it was really weird and different. Typical trip like this. You do vacation Bible school with all the children in the morning, and then you do some kind of construction in the afternoon, and then you go back to your camp and you have devotions or worship time. So this is what we were doing. We would walk down the streets, collect up the children. We were amazed that these parents would just hand us their children, sometimes babies in arms, take my kid. Everybody knew everybody in this little community, so it wasn't like you were going to get far. But all the kids came, and we you know, did crafts, and we sang songs, and we played games, and we did you know, store Bible stories and told them about the love of God. And then we'd eat our bag lunches, and then we'd do work on this church building. It's actually the first time I'd ever done floor tile, learned how to do the trowel and the, put the tile down and space it right and put the grout in. We were putting the tile floor in this church, and it was an active worshiping community. And let me tell you what happened personally as a result of serving that poor community. One, it felt inherently right. Something in my soul was saying, this is right and good to do. 
what you're doing is good. And another thing is that it opened my ears to God's voice in a way that I hadn't heard before. Maybe it was being open to God's work, opened me to His Word, but it wasn't long after that that He called me out of the engineering work I was doing and into ministry. But something about going and serving the poor gave me listening ears to hear God. I don't know why, but it's happened over and over again for me and others on these type of trips. And then the third thing that I picked up from this trip was how readily the poor received the kingdom of God. They just were, there, was, there were no barriers. They were eager for all that we could give them. They wanted us to pray for them. They wanted us to tell more Bible stories, sing more songs, do more crafts, everything. There was no like, how do you know God is real? There was none of that kind of stuff. You know, give me scientific proof for God. There, nothing. It was the poor crying out for God, and here comes a mission team, and they just received it immediately, which is not surprising because Luke uh, chapter 6, of all the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke the physician talks a lot about the marginalized, the poor, women, um, the the sojourners, the travelers among them, and he is very clear about God's heart for the marginalized. So, whereas Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he doesn't add the qualifier in spirit, although it's certainly there. You know, poverty of spirit is real, but physical poverty is real as well. And the poor come into the kingdom much more readily. I learned that all there. God helps the helpless. He has a special heart for those who are the least of society. If you do a word search, I did it through my computer in the ESV for the word poor, it pops up 183 times. If you look for the word widow, it's in there 93 times. If you look for the word fatherless, I looked for the word orphan and it didn't come up. I was like, what? And then I looked fatherless, it's in there 42 times. So these are the people in society that are most at risk. They're the ones who don't have the the human safety net they need to survive. So God steps in to help those who are helpless. And he calls his people to do the same to care for those who are marginalized. Consider this. In Isaiah 58, the prophet is um, speaking on behalf of God against the people of Israel for the way that they do their fasting and their prayer and their feasts and their worship. And he says, I don't like what you're offering me. He says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That idea of hiding yourself from your own flesh is this. God actually thinks we belong one to another. That if somebody else suffers, all of humanity is suffering and and all of humanity is called upon to go and help. The Cain and Abel thing, who is my brother? When, when Cain tries to put off that Abel's his brother, am I my brother's keeper? God's answer is, yes, you are. You are to look out for one another. That's God's design for us. So he's saying, your, your own flesh, other people. Or if you think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer was, anyone in need is your neighbor. That's basically the answer of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So God wants us to care for those who are helpless. He wants us to be the help that they don't have. Also, not just the Old Testament, um, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has become a missionary, and he didn't want to preach the wrong message, and he didn't want to get it wrong. 
So after a while, he goes up to where the other apostles were and talks with them about his ministry. And listen to what he says. He says, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars of the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas as well, that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So whether it was Peter and his group or Paul, they all understood that God helps the helpless and calls his people to do the same. So Paul was going to go reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel, and Peter and the others were saying, hey, that's great, go for it, but make sure you remember the poor. And Paul says it was the very thing I was eager to do, because he knows. He knows that God cares for the, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the traveler. You know, in our day, we travel and we have you know, embassies and smartphones and credit cards and planes. In their day, no communication. You go wandering for months on end. You have no support network, no way to communicate, and you're very vulnerable. So God said, care for the sojourner among you. When somebody's traveling through your town, look out for them. Make sure they don't become the victim of something. That's part of caring for those in need. And he says, this was our very, the very thing we wanted to do, care for those that were in need. So Paul and his ministry would collect up money from the wealthier churches, and he would take it to the poor churches in Jerusalem and distribute it. That came along with the proclamation of the gospel. He brought both physical, tangible relief and spiritual relief. Christianity has a long history of serving the poor. Josephus, who's one of the Jewish historians, writes um, quotes from some of the Gentile leaders uh, who, who said they, meaning the Christians, not only care for their own poor, but ours also. They recognized that the Christians were caring for any person that was in need. And it was sort of scandalizing this, this society that didn't care for its own poor and these Christians that they hated were caring for their poor and were helping people. Society expects that, even today. I was doing youth ministry in Dan's hometown when, when he was a teenager, and I went to the public high school, Wando High School in Charleston, and in the high school lunchroom, I was visiting with kids, and I was seeing a kid from my youth group, and his friend goes, hey, give me a dollar, I want a Coke. And I said, why should I give you a dollar? And he goes, because you're a Christian, you have to. <laughs> that was his answer. I don't remember if I gave him the dollar or not. I know we had a really interesting conversation about it, though, but his expectation was Christians care for people. They're generous, and they serve others. And that's no different today. Secular society looks in on Christianity and says, you guys should be caring for the poor. And they're right. And so we do. And then they see the kingdom of God break in. So Jesus says something in Matthew 25. He says, when you do this kind of service to the least of these, my brothers, you're, you're actually doing it to me. So we're not just serving the poor, we're serving Christ in the poor. What a sweet offering that is to think I can serve Jesus himself by caring for somebody who is in need. Now, once again, in this passage of Luke, we've got Jesus dealing with motives. He's not saying, don't ever bring your friends over to your home for dinner. Don't have your family over. Don't eat with people of equal socioeconomic status. He is not saying that. What he is saying is, care for people, though, that are in need and watch your motives. Do you just entertain people so that they'll pay you back? You know, I want to invite so-and-so over to our house because I want to go see what their house is like. Or I know so-and-so is a really good cook, so I'm going to have them over to my house so that then I can be invited to their house. He's saying, watch your motives. And he's saying, care for those that can't invite you back. So when you have a party, invite the poor, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
the ones who have no means to pay you back. He's basically saying, care for the least among us. I care about the helpless. I want my people to care about the helpless. Now, I think there are probably at least, I'm sure there are more, but there are three bad motives and then one really good motive when it comes to doing this kind of ministry of mercy to people. One bad motive is this, self-interest. I'm going to serve them because it's like an investment. I'm going to serve the poor and I'm going to get something back out of it. It's like um, God will be indebted to me in some way. You might not know that there actually was a doctrine called works of supererogation. And it came from the, the Latin word erogare, which means to pay out. Like God was paying out certain things to people and you could get a super payout by doing even more than was required of you. That God would somehow be indebted to you. I know it sounds preposterous when I say it, but it was, it was a very common teaching in the Middle Ages. And Martin Luther, the reformer, said that's ridiculous. And he attacked it. And the, the Anglican church, the Church of England, put out its 39 articles. And Article 14 says this. He says, it says, works of supererogation cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety. For by them, men do declare that they not only render unto God as much as they are bound to, but that they do more for his sake than of bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ plainly says, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are only unprofitable servants. That's Article 14. So the, the Anglican Church, the Lutherans, the, the Reformers all said that idea that you can somehow make an investment and God is now in your debt because of your service to the poor is crazy. You can't ever do that. So the motive of I'm going to serve the poor because then God will have to serve me, bad, bad, don't do that, don't do that. Another one is paying our dues. I came across this, um, this poem by uh, William Barclay, and he, he's a, a Scottish preacher and author, and he wrote this little poem, and I, I read it to Heather yesterday to try, I said, hey, can I just read out loud this poem? I want to see if I have the syllables right on it. And, and the end kind of had a whip because she thought it was a poem about like the widow's might of giving a small offering in the offering box and it blessing God because it was a, an act of worship, but that's not where it goes. And so I've just given away the end, but it goes like this. He dropped a penny in the plate and meekly raised his eyes, glad the week's rent was duly paid for mansions in the skies. Like I'm buying heaven. As I give my alms, it's like, there's my rent for this month, God. I'm, I'm securing my place by paying you. I'm, I'm, I'm paying off my, my mortgage ahead of time. So when I get there, it's paid. And, you know, that, no, that, that's, that obviously is not good either. A third one that might even be more common is to feel superior. You do feel good when you serve the poor because you recognize you're not. That if you find people that are in a worse state than you are, a lot of times it makes you feel okay about your state. And that's no good. To do it so that you'll feel good is not right. There was a rabbinical saying that the best gift occurs when the giver doesn't know who the recipient is and the recipient doesn't know who the giver is. Jesus said, let your right hand not know what your left hand is giving and vice versa, right? Because there's a temptation to feel puffed up like, wow, I'm really wealthy and I'm doing really well. I feel good about myself because I see that they're not doing so well. And that's not a good motive. So here's what I think the number one motive should be. What, not just because we're commanded by God to do this, which we are, but I think it should come as an overflow of love, that we simply have an abundance for others. We recognize that what God has done has given us so much in terms of spiritual 
and sometimes physical resources that we are able to give it away, to sow into other people's lives. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Apostle Paul writes this, speaking of Christ, though being rich, he became poor for your sakes so that you might become rich in him. The riches of Christ is what Christians have, and it's out of that abundance that we're able to serve others. We've been so blessed by him and what he's done for us that we're able then to care for others. Now, let me go specific in application here. I want to bring this down to a couple of specific things. You don't have to look far to find those who are the marginalized. In this particular chapter, he talks about those who are poor, physically poor, crippled, lame, or blind. You could consider a number of other things. I want to consider one specific group this Sunday. The mission of the week, which we'll come back to at the end of the service, is First Coast Women's Services. And because of our schedule at the church and the launch of Alpha, we pushed the National Sanctity of Life Sunday back. It's normally last month. We decided that we'll recognize it today because it fit in with where we were preaching and this idea of caring for the least among us. It's hard to find someone who is more of, a, of that category than the unborn. They really are the most vulnerable. And in this country, our laws allow this, uh, us to end life. And so I want to encourage you to have a voice about that. Don't be loud and obnoxious, but simply say, I just think this is wrong. Not politically, theologically, that God is a God of life and that what we do in this country is wrong. It's morally wrong and reprehensible, and we need to change the laws. And of course, do your votes and all that stuff, and tr let's try and pray for our country to flip this over. But when Roe versus Wade was put in place 46 years ago, 1973, the, the vote went seven to two among the justices. And even some of their write-ups of this decision appealed to science at the time. A lot of time has passed in those almost 50 years, and Everybody on both sides of this debate recognizes that life happens at conception. Science has gotten that much better. So we're real clear on that. The question now becomes, when does personhood start? Because it would be wrong to end the life of a person. That's where the argument goes. But the scriptures are super clear. Nobody's made a good biblical argument for the Roe versus Wade decision. There's just not a good one. There's a ton of stuff in here, though, that goes the other direction. Consider Psalm 139. We sang a bit of that this morning. David says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's not just mere biological matter. That's the miracle of life. And that's God doing it. Or consider what he says when he calls his prophet Jeremiah. He says, it says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So God clearly is a God of life. And to him, it starts even before conception because he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. He's the one who is the creator. And so we are very presumptuous on that as Americans on that topic, allowing this so-called freedom of choice. I want to encourage you to have a voice and stand up for those who can't fight for themselves. Secondly, let me leave that one for a minute. I want to encourage you to have a two-pronged approach to serving people. 
there are categories, and forgive the labels, but a lot of times those who are labeled as liberals tend to go for the social gospel, meaning serve the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison. And the so-called conservatives tend to go with the more dogmatic theological and preach the gospel and pray for spiritual conversion. Don't have a two-pronged approach. Do both. As the Compassion International Ministry says, an empty stomach has no ears. You can't preach for salvation to somebody who's dying of starvation. Feed them first, and then they'll listen. That's basic understanding of the hierarchy of needs. So we should care for the poor, and we should care for them spiritually. So we should share the gospel, and we should do deeds of charity. I think this is clear in the scripture. So take a two-pronged approach to that. Do spiritual conversion work. Try and lead people to faith in Christ because all of us are the least spiritually, as David said, he's mired in the pit and he's poor and needy before God. And he was the king of Israel. So it's not like he was physically poor, but he was spiritually poor. And then of course, there are a ton of physically poor. Let's meet their needs and then let's proclaim the gospel to them. And then finally, I'm I'm really proud of our church, actually. This isn't like, you guys aren't doing enough. This is a recognize, here's the what the Bible says about the importance of doing this. This is why the abundance for others is so important. Our church does every Sunday and all the services, we have a mission of the week at the end of the service where we are reminded to go out and serve the world. And we, we promote one of these mercy ministries. So again, today it'll be First Coast Women's Services, which is caring for crisis pregnancy situations. But I want to encourage you, if you don't have a place to care for the least, to find one. Get a connection guide. There's a list of every ministry in there. And, um, and don't just do it alone. Go with your group. You're in a life group or a small group. Go and serve together. It's way more fun that way and more powerful. And then you can process the experience together. I mean, even the Ecclesiastes said, you get a better return. Two get a better return for their work than one. And a cord of three is not easily broken. And if one falls into a pit, the other can lift him out. So I want to encourage you with your life group to go and do these kind of works. And you can talk to Dan, you can talk to others about which ones are ready for that. So talk to your life group leaders about how to plug in there. And let's be people that out of the abundance God has given us, care for the least among us, as well as the last and the lost. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you again for this high call. And I pray that you would draw us into the excitement of service that even as that mission trip that Heather and I took so many years ago transformed us, I pray for each person in this room that we would know that experience, that it would become addictive in a great way, that we would be excited to see your kingdom come. And I thank you for how readily the poor receive you, for who else can they turn to. Thank you for helping the helpless, including us. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.